Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been disappointed in someone that you thought that you could trust and love? It's not easy, is it? Uh, when you come to that point of discovery that your worst suspicions are confirmed, this person that was supposed to be your friend, your relative, your family member, whomever, has disappointed you and you don't know quite what to do about it. How much worse is it if it repeats itself? That after the original offense, appropriate steps were taken, uh, forgiveness was asked and conferred, and you thought everything was good, and then it happens again. Forgiveness is asked and conferred, and then it happens again. And that there's a point in there where you feel like you can no longer trust that person or those people. And you decide that something has to happen. I had uh, a couple back in my uh, church in Nebraska who, they were not wealthy, they were dairy farmers. They, uh, I called the man of the house, uh, I loved him very much, but uh, I called him Popeye. Because if you know dairy farmers, after a while, those forearms just get burly. Uh, he could do anything. There were just amazing strength in this man. Uh, but his oldest son had reached the point where he was ready for college, and Arnold had taken all the money that he had, and they sent him off to school at about an hour and a half away from where we lived. And one day I got a phone call, probably about October, mid-October, and uh, this man and his wife asked us to come out to lunch with them, and they wanted to talk to us. And so when we got there, uh, they shared this story that they had gone to the college to visit their son. They were so excited. This son was the first one in their family who had gone to college. Uh, they were so proud of him. They wanted to see where he lived and all this stuff. And they get there only to discover that his son is not registered. And there was a long brouhaha with the registrar saying, you certainly must be wrong. I've been sending money every month to pay for his tuition and his room and so forth. Uh, he is definitely a student here. I know my son. And so they looked. They thought, well, well, we'll take it upon ourselves. Maybe somehow he got messed up in the administration. Uh, his name isn't where it should be. And so they, they waited probably two hours while the college basically did a search for this kid. And uh, they said, no, at no time was a young man by this name ever registered at our college. Now, this was before cell phones, right? So they could have easily today have called that cell phone and asked, where are you? What are you doing? And so forth. But uh, they began to get very panicked, like, where is our son? So they called any authorities they could think of. They, they looked at hospitals. They tried to find friends that might be able to tell them to make a long story short, uh, they eventually found it. Living in an apartment off campus, he had been taking their money and having a great time, at least in his mind. Yeah, partying all the time, living with some other guys, not going to school. It's a story I saw over and over again in my previous church of youth ministry. Uh, kids who took parents' money, betrayed their trust, blew fortune, basically, opportunity out the window, 
Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, what do you do now? How do you retrust someone who has done that to you? I had another friend, and I've shared this story before, a good guy that I'd met in seminary. And uh, we, were, we became very good friends. And I loved him. His, his little daughter was a girl when we left seminary that was about three years of age. And uh, Iona and I took care of her quite often, thought she was wonderful. Um, but in his first pastorate, his first real one, out in Oregon, um, she was diagnosed with diabetes. And she was about 12, 13. And it really hit her hard. And she just kind of gave up on life. And that's not the worst of it. Uh, pretty soon, she turned to drugs. Uh, at that time in the United States, that northwest area of the nation, and maybe it still is, I don't know, uh, was just gripped by what we in youth ministry called the grunge scene. Uh, a lot of drugs, a lot of antisocial behavior, a uh, definite lack of conformity to anything that was institutional or parental and so forth. Uh, again, to make a long story short, my friend had to go down to the downtown streets of Portland and recover his daughter where she was turning tricks in order to earn money for her drug habit. He called me one night sitting outside the door of her bedroom uh, because he couldn't go to bed because as soon as he left the door, she would be out. And he's just weeping and saying, what do I do? I've tried everything with this girl. I, I've tried to help her. We've put her in rehab. She doesn't follow through and so forth. And it was just about as horrific a story as you can imagine. And yet we keep coming back, don't we? If you're a parent, you know the love that you have for your child. It's so hard to know how to handle those instances of betrayal. The reason I mentioned these today is because when you look at the book of Micah and you think about this prophet uh, living in the time of Isaiah and Obadiah, in the time of King Ahaz and Hezekiah, he's facing the same situation. The people of Israel had betrayed God's trust over and over. Uh, they had taken his covenant assurances, his blessings, and they had used them only to worship a different God. Is it any wonder that the Lord refers to their behavior as prostitution? You've gone a-whoring after other gods. You've no longer loved me, your first love. And so as you look through the book of Micah and you read his prophecies, it's just a series of, here's the offense, here's the prophecy of what's going to happen to you, and here is a chapter of hope that someday things will turn around. In the first chapter, it's all about thunder and lightning and destruction, uh, that power of God that they had all seen as Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And God had to demonstrate to them that he is Jehovah, he is Elohim, he is power, and I can defeat all of your enemies. I will be your God, you will be my people. But this time the focus isn't on the other enemies, it's on them. And he says to the people who lived in Jerusalem, I will show you my destructive power. I'm angry. The people that were offending God were largely in Micah's focus on his prophecy, the leaders of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, the kings. The prophets were the most egregious. 
men who said that they stood up and were speaking God's words, but they were lying. They were trying to comfort the king, and they were trying to comfort the royal court and tell them, don't worry, God has got you. He's, he's behind you. And they knew full well that they were disobeying the law. They were not following their God. In fact, it was something that they got paid for to say words from God that would tickle their ears but would not be anywhere close to the truth. So Micah reserves special vehemence in his prophecy for these men who claim to be the prophets of God. You get the sense that God had to send multiple true prophets, Micah, Isaiah, and so forth, because these people were so inured to resisting the message of God. And so we march along and through the small little book, only seven chapters, and we get to chapter five, the focus of where we're at today. And you say, well, this is a Christmas morning. We're, we're ready. The Advent candle of peace has been lit. We want to be excited. Most of us have family coming. What does this have to do with us? Well, this chapter five is one of those chapters of hope. After all of the prophecies of destruction, of what's going to happen, Micah is telling them that Assyria is coming to take away the northern kingdom. Babylon is coming to take away Judah with its capital of Jerusalem, that nothing will be left of this nation, that their God who had protected them all this time had had enough. He was angry. And you don't want to make God angry. But he says, don't lose hope. He said, it won't always be this way. For you who are hearing my voice right now, it will be this way. But for your children, or maybe your grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, there's hope. Something else will happen. So we get to chapter 5. And as we've read, I'm going to reread parts of it this morning. It is said in verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In other words, this is a reminder of his previous prophecy. You will suffer. God is angry. But in verse 2, here comes the hope. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What in the world is Micah saying? I wonder what the kings and the false prophets of Micah's day thought when he started preaching this little sermonette, this song of triumph and in hope and expectation. Bethlehem? Well, certainly they knew what Bethlehem was. It wasn't too far from Jerusalem, just really a stone's throw away. What do they have to do with anything? It wasn't a noble city. It wasn't something to be excited about. They did understand, though, this reference. They immediately probably thought as kings of Judah, as inheritors of the Davidic kingdom and of the Davidic promise, that this Bethlehem is the city of David, the most honored king in the history of Israel, the man whose heart was known and loved by God. But you, O Bethlehem, 
Now, you know, in the Hebrew, it's Beth, and you can almost hyphen it and say Lahem, right? Beth Lahem, and then this title, meaning those who had moved to this area, Ephrathoth. This little town, this is our hope for the future, not Jerusalem? No. He says, from this little town, who is too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, it's, it's of no importance. It's, there's no anything good about it. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Not too hard to understand. If David came from there, certainly someone else could come from there. But why? Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah is basically saying, you should have known this. This is something that has been prophesied before. It, all you have to do is look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic promise, and it says there that David's throne will never end. That no, no matter how disobedient and betraying Israel becomes, there will always be a king from this land for the nation of Israel. Despite Assyria, despite Babylon, despite the uh, Persians, there will be somebody who's coming forth. He doesn't give us much of a timetable. He says it's just something you should have known from ancient days. And then he moves on in verse 3. Therefore shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The rest of the brothers shall return. So it speaks to the diaspora, the, the pushing out of the Israelites from the promised land, just as Abraham, Abraham had worked so hard to come into this land, and Jacob and his sons and so forth, now they're being pushed back out. But the day's coming when they shall be brought back in by the grace of God. In verse 4, a powerful verse. And he, referring to this person that is coming forth in Bethlehem, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name, and this is a powerful phrase, the Lord his God. There's a distinction to be made there. It's not saying that just that God is going to be defending Israel once again, just like in the Old Testament, but instead there is this strange person arising in the future who will speak for God, who will have the majesty of God, who will have the attributes of the Lord his God. He shall stand strength. Military prowess. Nothing can defeat him. It's all built into that word to stand. And shepherd his flock. Wow, that's intimate. Bethlehem was known as a place of sheep. A place where the flocks were raised. David was a shepherd. So this man, whoever he is, he's coming. He's going to be in the strength of God, but yet as a shepherd like David, he will take care of the flock. And how's he going to do this? In the strength of the Lord. Powerful figure. Great promise. And then as we continue to read, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is more than just a king. This is more than just a ruler, an emperor. This is somebody who has power like they've never seen before. It is the hope of their future. God is not done with Israel. The kings may have betrayed God 
Obedience, as we said last week. Disobedience, judgment. Obedience, disobedience, judgment. They've betrayed God over and over again. They enjoyed his promises and his care for them without giving anything in return. They had completely broken the Mosaic covenant and God had had enough. And they, their children, and who knows how far into the future will not enjoy God's provision for the time being. They're going to be taken away to cruel overlords. They will really, in a sense, reap their just rewards. That which they so much wanted, which was God to be out of their life so that they would be free to worship their pagan gods, they'll be given free reign. You ever do that with your kids? They beg you and beg you and they want something. Uh, they think it's going to be best for them and you know, no, this, if you get this, this is not going to be fun. You're going to find this very difficult. And that's what God does with Jerusalem, with Israel. Take them. You want to go to Babylon and worship Dagon? Then go ahead. I won't stop you, but you're going to find that there is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no gentleness. There is no humbleness. There is no provision. But in fact, you're bending your knees to a stone. You're, you're worshiping something that is inanimate. It can do nothing for you. At worst, it's a demonic power hiding behind that stone, and at best, it's just that something that could be crumbled, broken. In, in Babylon, they had a whole room collection of what their armies had stolen from other countries, including their gods, images of their god. Who knows what they stole from Jerusalem? But they probably found more images of other nations' gods than they did of Jehovah God in the whole land. God gave them what they needed. At least that's what they thought they needed. And all they do once they got there, as it says in some of the exilic prophets, they sat there singing songs of the joy they once had in Israel. Oh, it'd be so great to get to go back when God was our God and we worshiped Jehovah and Solomon's temple was opened and all of the people gathered from all of the tribes and we went inside and God was praised, and we knew that his Shekinah glory filled the Holy of Holies. Bold to be back in those days. Some of us are kind of dumb that way, aren't we? <laughs> we have to hit our head against the wall so many times before we wake up and we realize that God's already given us what we need. Oh, man. Sometimes I've, I've met men who pursue, pursue other women that are not their wives. They think, oh, if only I could have that person, if I could be with that person, if I could be free from that person, life would be so great. And it isn't too long until they realize, no, it isn't. Foolish actions, foolish thoughts. And God says, be fools. Be fools. You will learn the hard way what, how good you had it with me. In verse 5, it's just the first part. At that time when this new Messiah rises and he returns us to the land, he shall be their peace. What a prophecy. What an amazing, amazing thing. Well, let's look forward into the New Testament, into the Gospels, into Luke 
chapter 2. And there we have just the fulfillment of the promises that Micah is making uh, to his people when he tells them that from Bethlehem shall come the hope of the future. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And that little boy is born into this world. No one knew it. We talked about this last week from the prophecy of Zephaniah. The angels came and told the shepherds, and eventually the magi would show up with their very costly gifts. But the world, for the most part, they ignored the coming of this man. Why Bethlehem? We asked that question earlier. Why Bethlehem? Well, some make a big deal about the fact that Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem and the temple that possibly this is the place where they bought the, the newborn lambs for sacrifice. Bethlehem was the place of David's kingdom. This was his city, um, but also as a place of shepherding. We have unblemished sheep available here. This is a place where God chose. Think, think about this just for a second this morning. If you're God and you're thinking about, wow, I could have my son, the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy of chapter 5, come into the world anywhere, where would you have Jesus be born? Jerusalem? Rome? Some other place? Uh, Some place important? Damascus? But Bethlehem? It would be similar to us saying, you know, the Messiah has come. He's in Kelowna. Everything Kelowna. Now, the wonderlicks are here this morning, so don't take offense at that. <laughs> but you know, that's what the world would be thinking: the, the, the God, the the power, this this man who stands for the Lord, and yet shepherds his flock, is coming to a little teeny town. Why? What sense does that make? A lot of guesses. As I've been reading this week, all I've come across as with people as, eh, maybe this is the reason, maybe that is the reason. Personally, I think it's just because he is the son of David. The Apostle Paul says in his intro to the book of Romans that Jesus is of the offspring of David. Matthew tells us in his birth chronicle with his genealogy that this begins with David. The Messiah is fully within the covenant circle that God created with the promises given from Abraham all the way to David in 2 Samuel 7, and now to this Messiah. He fulfills all of that. But beyond that, it's possible also, it's just because of the relationship of the shepherds to this birth story. I don't think it's any coincidence that the angels also could have appeared to many different groups of people. First, we have this city, Bethlehem. God identifies it. This will be it, the place. And now, of all the peoples that they could send angels to, that God could send angels to, to announce the birth of the Savior, he sends them to the shepherds. Sitting out there as we sing and watching their flocks by night, considered in that social atmosphere to be some of the lowest people in society, they were rough men, worked hard. Um, they were not the kind of people that should be the announcers of the birth of the Messiah. 
Most of them had a difficult time just making ends meet. And yet, on that night when the Messiah was born, the clouds open up, the angels appear, and the shepherds are the subject of their attention. Go, tell everyone, run to the city, run to the city and see what has happened. We're so used to that story. If you've been in church at all, but even if you hadn't been, if you're old enough, we used to sing these songs in the public school, believe it or not, away in the manger and so forth. But even more so, as we get to the Christmas season, we focus on shepherds. How many of you played shepherds in a school play or in a church play? You find a towel and you put a rope around your head and you're a shepherd. Find a hook if you're, if you're lucky. And we don't think twice about it. But think of the humility, the humbleness. It doesn't make any sense. It just blows your mind. Think about the size of your Bibles and all the pages that are there and the chapters and the, and the magnificence. And you say, what does this have to do with any Bethlehem, this town, and shepherds? When they came running to the stable, as they were commanded to do, to see this great thing that the angels had told them to see, what did they find? A king? No, they found a manger. A place where animals fed out of and probably did other things in. And there laid a baby. Especially beautiful miraculously quiet, didn't cry? Nah, I don't think so. And they saw a little teenage girl sitting there on the floor next to this child. And I'm sure they couldn't believe their eyes. I don't think that any of them thought of Micah chapter 5. Stand, shepherd, but God has his purpose. No mistake. God chooses the lowest things in society, the most ignoble things in culture, to triumph, to speak his word, to be revelation of his truth. I, I take great encouragement at that. Uh, I am no one, no one of importance. And God has anointed me at times to be the conveyor of his word. God has touched you to be people who can share this word with the people in your community, with your family members, with your spouse, with anyone who doesn't believe and say, this is it. Now, it didn't take much convincing for those shepherds. I don't know exactly what that experience was like. I don't think that there was an aura around the baby child, like a halo. I don't think that they saw anything that would have said to them on a normal night in a different place that this was the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, that this was the Messiah, except for the fact that the angels had told them it was. And that experience alone convicted them, convinced them that this was unique. This first Christmas would not be about toys or trees. It would not be about feasting and family. 
Joseph and Mary had basically separated themselves from most of their family in Nazareth, and they had traveled a long distance. They hadn't had a chance to shower, <laughs> whatever that looked like, and then they were dirty. They smelled, and here lay the baby. They go back to their fields, these Bethlehem shepherds, and they had to think, what had they seen? What did this mean? What was God doing? Well, thankfully, we're not there. We have had 2,000 years to think about this. We see what God was doing. Bethlehem shepherds taking sheep to the temple for sacrifice? It's possible that God wants us to think about the fact that this is not just a baby laying in a manger, but it is the sheep, the lamb. When John the Baptist sees him some 30 years later, what is his first words when he sees him coming? Behold, look, it's a command. See him for who he is, the Lamb of God. I don't know, I suppose somewhere there's a high school in the United States that has lamb as a mascot. A big, burly, bold lamb that strides forth. But probably not. Though in Omaha, we had the Benson High School bunnies. I always loved that. Yeah. We're going to play the bunnies. But they knew what that meant. Behold, the lamb. The lamb of God. How exciting. Well, not really. What it meant. What is the lamb used for? What did those shepherds raise their sheep for? They had lambs that probably the priests came and took perhaps purchased for sacrifice. Even in the telling of this seemingly innocent Christmas story, there is bloodshed. And we can't miss it. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Our sins are so heavy. Uh, let's go back to the day of Micah, Zephaniah, all of these prophets, what's happening? Disobedience, betrayal, over and over. After a while, if someone takes advantage of you and promises that they're sorry, they ask your forgiveness, about the third, fourth, and definitely the sixth, seventh time, we don't believe them anymore, do we? Yeah, this is too much. I, I can't handle this. Even our own children. There's just, there's a limit to how far we can be taken. And yet, when we think of that Christmas story, it's all beauty, soft glow, Christmas tales, away in the manger. But because of the association of Bethlehem, those shepherds, what that trough really was, it's not just a baby laying there. It's a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. He is going to give his life as only he can do. The perfect man, the fulfillment of the law. And he's going to do so for our sins. And it's sad. You say, well, that wasn't me. 
I didn't live in Micah's day. I haven't been betraying God. I haven't disappointed him over and over. I appreciate what Jesus did, but holy cow, isn't that a little overkill? All I've done is maybe told a few lies. Uh, maybe I didn't pay all my taxes. Uh, I have thoughts that I probably shouldn't have. You can go down the list. But God says, I am holy. I am holy. I've made a covenant with my people. This whole story out of Luke and Matthew, this birth narrative with this baby, is totally part of a covenant narrative, a promise. As in the day of Abraham, when God put him to sleep at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15, God went through that aisle of fire and smoke by himself. It's an unconditional covenant. You can think about that all you want, but Abraham didn't take part in that. He wanted to. He thought he should, but God says, no, you can't do it. You see, my holiness is so awesome. It's so great. I am so without sin that I cannot even think about entering into any kind of promise with you. Abraham was a pretty righteous guy. God says, no, you have sin. You cannot, you are not worthy to make a promise to me because you won't keep it. And so goes the stories as we read through the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. Broken promise after broken promise after broken promise. And finally, by the close of the Old Testament, God has had enough. And he sends his son to stand for God's people to shepherd the flock. But before he can do that, this sacrificial lamb has to give his life. He does so willingly. He does so in fulfillment of everything that God has commanded. When he's on that cross and he says, it is finished, that is the true fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. You and I needed him to do that. No one else could have done that. Whether you've sinned a lot or whether you've sinned a little, it doesn't matter. You're born into sin. We are children of wrath by nature, according to the Apostle Paul. We needed that act. We needed that baby to be born, and we needed him to grow up spotless, sinless, so that he, as a sacrificial lamb, may be offered upon a cross and when that blood is shed, the veil is torn. God no longer resides in the Holy of Holies like he did in the Old Testament. According to the New Testament, the new covenant that we participate in, we should be singing great songs like we are right now because that same God lives in us. The sin is eradicated and the new life is given. We are new creation. In Jesus Christ. Shepherds didn't know that. They didn't understand all that. The angels did, I think. They understood at least that something hugely important was happening in God's economy. The Messiah had come. He is here. Today we lit the candle of peace. Peace, by definition, is a reconciliation.
Sometimes we think of peace as being passive. Well, it would be nice to have peace, the cessation of war, of disagreement. Can we just have peace in our house? Do we have to argue all the time? Can we have peace in our marriage? Will you promise to say only what I want you to say from here on out? We want peace, as if it's something that you can go and buy off a store shelf, and you can't. Not divine peace. According to the Word of God, peace is a product of a relationship with the Father. That peace can only come through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. I love Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. He says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It is peace. Isaiah, or excuse me, Micah ended his section of prophecy by just saying he will bring peace. Peace is a powerful tool. As a pastor, I use it all the time. I talk to people who are in torment, who are in distress. Iona and I lead them through a study, usually on forgiveness, but they have to deal with the Messiah. They have to deal with that baby who became a sacrificial lamb on that cross for them to enjoy peace. It cannot be a passive thing. It is something that we take an active role in, and that is by giving our will to the Savior, our, our, our hopes, our dreams. We want him to restore peace. We pray for peace in this world, peace in our cities, peace that is happening with those who protest and burn and all we can think of is ah, political answers to this and political answers to that. But this Christmas, this is time for us to focus on the fact that it's not just a baby lying in a manger. It's a new life and from that new life comes peace. Philippians 4 says that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds in whom? Christ Jesus. Without him, peace is impossible. The upheavals, the turmoil that our society faces today is just like in the days of Israel. It is what they wanted. It is what they've asked for. And God is letting them have it. But the day is coming. When, just like in the days of Micah's prediction that the Messiah would come, so the Messiah will come again. I've been saying this all the way through our Advent season, but we haven't seen the end of these prophecies yet. Partially fulfilled, but not completely. The Messiah will come, and we will see him take his stand in this world. In the meantime, we have a limited amount of time to share the truth, the story of Christmas with those that we love and with those that we don't love as much. That is our goal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for that baby child coming into this world so humbly, so dirty, so like the rest of us. And we thank you most of all, Father, that he was perfect and that he came and he fulfilled the law and was able to go to that cross and give his life for us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that has not done business with you, that needs to help themselves come to the table, 
to see Christ as he is and to receive him as Lord and Savior. I pray that that would happen today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.